I had lost my identity completely. I had moved cross country. I don't think anybody cared about my education. My work was gone. I didn't have any friends. Because of that deep sort of hole I was in, just in terms of my identity and who I wanted to be and who I was becoming, I was now a stay-at-home mom, and that would ne had never been my plan. I, it just, I had to figure out, okay, what's next for Janine? What, what's next? Intrigued by the world of independent schools, Janine DeBenedetto Graham, Dartmouth 96, thought she'd found a great fit there right after college. But a wife and mother earlier than she'd envisioned, she felt she had lost her independent identity. Find out how doing something for yourself can actually put you on the path back to serving others on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with my friend Janine, Janine De Benedetto Graham, uh, who I met before we even started school uh, because we sang together with the Dodecaphonics. And I'm so pleased to talk with her today because she had a fairly unconventional step off of the college on the hill and um, now is back in education and has lots of great twists and turns on her road. So Janine, thank you for being with me. It's wonderful to be with you, and it's so great to see you again. Thank you for having me here. So we begin these interviews almost the same way every time, and I ask, when you were in college, who were you, and when you were leaving, who did you think you were going to be? Ooh, that's a really good question. I came from a small town in Massachusetts. Um, I'm a first-generation college student, and so I think... Um, who I was at Dartmouth was someone who was tremendously insecure, um, really not knowing my place, not knowing if I belonged on one hand. And on the other hand, was so incredibly grateful for the opportunities um, that were clearly awaiting me. And I threw myself into just about everything. Um, the Dodecaphonics, for example, I remember meeting you and knowing that you knew how to read music and that I didn't and thinking, oh, gosh, I seem, I think I've missed something along the way. And in fact, I, I had missed a lot of things along the way. But, you know, throwing myself into relationships, into classes, into opportunities. So it was really this dichotomy of great insecurity, but great willingness to learn. So the person I became when I was leaving Dartmouth was certainly someone who was much more confident in her abilities and certainly someone who had a greater sense of what she wanted. Um, but I still didn't really know how to get there. I remember um, the spring of our senior year hearing people getting jobs and thinking, I don't really know how to do that. I didn't really know how to make that jump um, into a professional world because it was one that I was very unfamiliar with. So I had applied to positions in Morocco because that's where I did my field work. And when I didn't get them, I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do. So I went home. I went to Massachusetts, um, which actually wasn't home anymore. My parents had already moved to Arizona. So I had to um, get an apartment and shared it with three other Dartmouth grads, all three of us, not certain how we were going to make our way in the world. So that's where it began. So what was that first, you know, how did you give yourself a lifeline then? One of the first things that was curious to me when I got to Dartmouth was this recognition that other people had a different high school experience than I did. And I was really intrigued by the confidence they had, the ability to talk to professors who to me were terrifying. Um, and a lot of them had gone to independent schools. And I didn't really know what that meant, um, but I was curious from the get-go what was an independent school. Um, so 
when I landed in Boston, I applied to work at a place called Carney Sando, which um, at the time called themselves consultants to the independent schools. And that's where I began my journey back into education. And it was through Carney Sando, through the work that I did, that I better understood really the ethos around independent schools and, and what they provided to students and really what they stood for. And you know, the mission associated with each independent school is different. There was really something very interesting to me about that work. So I, I was at Carney Sando for a year. And then I actually, um, with the support of the Carney Sando people, placed myself in an independent school in Florida that next year. So that's where I began. Um, I was also dating my current husband. So um, living in Boston made sense for a lot of reasons. And then I, I, I left my current husband when I moved to Florida. So that was also kind of an interesting step for me that led to lots of tears. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the grand scheme of things, pretty, pretty short-lived tears. Correct. Uh, right, right. Because um, unlike most of us who were struggling both with our careers and our love lives, you kind of were on this pretty fast track. I think you were my first wedding <laughs> after graduation, right? Yeah, I was definitely on the fast track, um, for sure. I uh, had lots of experience with relationships leading up to college, which I think was unusual, maybe because my brother was five years older, I don't know. But I had had lots of relationships and knew exactly what I was looking for. So when I met Andy, he really was perfect in so many ways. He had just come a little too soon. Um, I really didn't want to get married as early as I did, but you know, we have a big age gap. So he, to some degree, felt like his clock was ticking. And so right. you were, you came too late for him. almost. Exactly. So he needed to get you class of 80, right? Class of 80. Yeah. Yep. And so here you are trying to juggle a new reality of I'm married and I'm trying to find my way in this career that I, I know somewhere deep in my heart I love, but I, you know, I'm new to it. Um, what was that period like, like for you? Yeah, it was challenging. So I went into the independent school experience, not fully understanding really what I liked about work. I think for a lot of people that that happens to be true. So I took a job that was going to allow me to do recruitment in um, all through Central and South America and utilize my Spanish skills because I was a, a minor in Spanish at Dartmouth and I really wanted to keep up my skills despite the fact that they were probably lacking to begin with. But anyway, so I took the job really because of the travel element, but what kept me in the job was the people and, and the kids that sought me out on a day-to-day basis because it was a boarding school. So I was having to kind of come to grips with who I was as a worker. I actually really liked analyzing data. I really liked some of the desk work I was doing. I liked less the travel. I found it really lonely and I hated that. I hated that reality. I also missed my husband and he was at a stage in his career where he was much more free. So he would spend days playing golf and I was traveling in you know, countries that were born to me, certainly, and where I didn't feel that successful. So it, it was a really challenging time for me, just trying to make sense of my new life. And I was in a very different place than all of my friends, as you well know, you being one of them. I um, was married. Everybody else was not even close, really. Um, no. And we were thinking about having a child, which was one part exciting, one part terrifying. So yeah, I got, I kind of got thrust into an, 
adulthood in a way that was confusing. It, it reminds it reminds me, actually, I don't know if you've read this book called The Defining Decade by Meg Jay, but it's a really interesting book about how you learn about yourself through jobs. You know, and I was learning about myself in ways that weren't necessarily consistent with who I thought I was. And I think that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance when all of a sudden you're like, what? wait, everything that I thought I knew about me, this adventurous girl just wants to stay home. Wait, this is confusing. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, at that point in our lives, we were young enough that we, we say that and we're like, oh, I must be this completely different person than I thought I was. When in reality, one element of yourself is a different person than you thought. And then there might be another yet different in a different way person, you know, it's totally nobody tells us that we're complex. <laughs> That's so right. And I think so many so often we put ourselves into boxes. I'm this kind of a person. And so when there is a deviation in one way or another, we feel like, well, then I can't be that person. But but I am I'm all that. I'm all of those things, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so very swiftly, though, you became a mother. I did. Yeah, I became a mother at 26, which is sort of hard to imagine. Yeah, early for well, us. With a really complicated pregnancy. Um, oh. I was on bed rest after 13 weeks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it was lonely, complicated, anxiety-provoking, you name it. And Andy was in the midst of looking for another job across country. So <laughs> while we were preparing for our baby, he was also preparing for a move. So Robbie came in November of 2000 and we moved to California in January of 2001. Oh my God. And I didn't yeah. know a soul. And there is a reason why people talk about needing a village to raise a child. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. That really resonates with me in a very meaningful way. I did not have a village. It was incredibly hard incredibly hard. And none of my close friends really understood what I was dealing with. And probably none of the people that you met as mom friends had much of the same experience, whether it be geographic or Ivy League education or, you know, work world, you know, everything was different, right? I had lost my identity completely. I had moved cross country. I don't think anybody cared about my education. And it wasn't, it's not something that Southern Californians talk about, which is interesting, just from a you know cultural perspective. My work was gone. I didn't have any friends. Yeah, it was a really, really, really challenging time for me. In retrospect, I think pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. uh, it was hard to uh, be a full-time parent and, and do it alone. Andy was working, we were living in Newport Beach. He was living, he was working in LA. So he was never home. Mm, um, right. But Robbie and I developed a really strong bond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he and was then, my little buddy. <laughs> right. And then you got Reed not so far after oh, that. I know. But a lot okay. happened in between. I think because of that deep sort of hole I was in, just in terms of my identity and who I wanted to be and who I was becoming, I was now a stay-at-home mom. And that would ne had never been my plan. I, it just, I had to figure out, okay, what's next for Janine? What, what's next? And I used to take a walk with Robbie in his stroller just the two of us, because we didn't know anybody. And I could see UCI, University of California, Irvine, from our walk. And I would look over and think, I, I need to be there. I need to go there. So that was the next chapter. Yeah, and chapter it was. I mean, you you were the first person I knew to get married. You were the first person I knew to get a baby. <laughs> 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 and get one, like buy one on the top. No. Um, 
And then you're the first person I knew that hadn't directly gone to pursue their master's or PhD. And there you were getting a PhD. Like you were superwoman to me at that point. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for that. It's not at I, all I wasn't, I, I didn't have my act together at all. And yeah, you felt like you didn't, but to the outside world, it really felt like, wow, she knows what she wants. She's going to do it. She's juggling everything. I don't know if that makes it better or worse almost. Like we think you're all fine. <laughs> That's right? really interesting actually to hear that perspective because from my internal lens, um, going back to graduate school was really grasping for something that felt familiar. It felt to me like an effort to try and regain some of my former self. I felt like I had totally lost myself at that point. And the one thing that I knew I was good at was school. Mothering did not come naturally to me. I, I love my kids more than anything, but I didn't have any real skills to know how to do it and no family or support, right, no support to help right. me through it. So going back to school felt like a life raft, truly. Yeah, but one that you do sleep deprived and totally right. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was crazy. Leslie, it was crazy. And I went back to get a master's, but they didn't offer one. So I was like, okay, I'll get a doctorate. No, truly, that's exactly the thinking. It was, I have to go back to school. This school is close to my home. I've read good things about it. I'm going to go. And there really wasn't a lot of like, this is the plan. And here's what I'm going to do with this education. It was just, I, I need to find some way back to myself. Um, so I started. And you did. I did it. Yeah, I did it. Um, sleep deprived. I used to study um, in between waking sessions. So Robbie was still waking up all the way through the time he was two. He was still waking up. So he'd wake up. I'd study, <laughs> put him back to bed. He'd wake up again. I mean, I think I probably averaged three or four hours of sleep. Yeah during that period of time. It was wild, totally wild. Cause I also didn't have any help. That was the other thing. I was so just filled with anxiety that I just didn't want anybody to take care of Robbie. Right. It was not rational. So I went, I went to night school. So when Andy got home, I would give him Robbie and go to night school and then I'd study in the middle of the night. Oh yeah. my gosh. I think it's but, taken like decades off my life, honestly. <laughs> right. I'm still tired. <laughs> so but you get through and not only do you get through, you use that time to build your rebuild your identity and, you know, rekindle these passion, this passion for education. And totally. it's almost as though it's good. You didn't have a vision or a path because you might not have seen the one that was opening to you. So tell me, you know, what the next step was after Dr. Graham. No, I think it's a, it's a really good point that you make. Initially, I had gone in with a sense of what I wanted to study, which was more about um, bilingual education. So there was really some interesting things going on in California that I was fascinated by. But I took a class in cognitive science with a professor who ultimately ended up being my mentor. And I was just lit up, kind of like I felt when I took my first anthropology class, just mm. lit up, like, oh my gosh, this is where I need to go. So I ended up moving more towards ed psychology on my path and was really fascinated. I've always been fascinated with what makes humans successful. And so really understanding personality traits, motivation, intelligences, just was fascinating to me to see how these all can come together in a human and allow them to be successful. So that was really the path I took. Now, keep in mind, I took a lot of breaks. So my second 
pregnancy was also complicated. So I had to take a leave because I was on bed rest after 14 weeks. So the plan when I first started graduate school was to have me graduate in six years. It was more like 10. So Mm -hmm. um, I did not get through in a speedy way. But as you say, while it took me a long time, I was able to, to learn so much and get myself involved in so many different things. And ultimately, I'm really glad I took that time because it helped me really clarify what the next chapter of Janine Graham was going to be. And who am I again, right? Right, right. Right. Yeah, so that last year prior to my graduation, um, I had been asked to fill in for my My boys were at a school called St. Margaret's Episcopal School, which is where I currently work. And uh, the admission director at the time was climbing Everest. And so he asked me if I would sit in while he was climbing Everest, which was just a two-month stint, right? He knew I had done admission. I had talked to him in the past. And so I said, yeah, great. Love to do that. So it was a little complicated, but I was able to do it. And in the, it just happened that his office was opposing the headmaster's office. So I got to talking to him at one point. And then before long, um, I was invited to sit on the board of trustees of the school that I loved so much that my boys were a part of. And so I was on the board of trustees. And then when I graduated, they lost, the school lost their academic dean. And so it was this really interesting period of time where the headmaster at the, at the time looked at me after a board meeting and said, oh, be amazing if you were interested in that job. And I kind of laughed it off. And I went home and told Andy about it. And he was like, that would be amazing. You love this school. And I was like, no, at the time I was running a research unit at UCI. I was teaching at UCI. So a lot had been going on in my life in that past year. And I was, I didn't feel like it was the right time to leave. But after hearing more about the job, I decided, yeah, that was what I was going to do. So right after graduation, obviously I'm sitting on the board, I'm running a research unit at UCI, I'm teaching classes, and I'm working with my mentor, the cognitive science teacher that our professor that I had met early on in the program. Things got complicated at that point because um, he had terminal cancer. And so I was taking over more and more and more of his work and knowing that I was going to have to be leaving. So it was another really fraught period of time. Um, and then just to add something else in the, into the mix, we decided to sell our house. Right. So we moved to San Juan Capistrano, which I love. I live a mile from my school. We, I was taking this job and realizing that the drive from Newport Beach was just going to be unsustainable. And both kids were really active. Robbie is, you know, was a three sport varsity athlete. So he was always going to be at school. And I knew that. And you've, you've blossomed there. It's been really such a blessing. You know, when I was doing research at UCI, I loved the notion that I could add to the knowledge base, right? But when you add to um, institutional knowledge, it really is so specific, right? So specific. I think maybe 10 people have read my dissertation and, you know, maybe a few more have read some of the research I've done. At St. Margaret's, I was able to see the evidence of whatever change, whatever we decided to do, whatever policies we created, whatever new curriculum, I was able to see it. It was just much Mm -hmm. more tangible. And so I really loved that. And I could see the kids that were being impacted. You know, when you're working in a research lab, you really have no idea who's being impacted. So I, I really loved working in a school in a way that I never, ever expected I would. In fact, if you had told me when I was a teenager 
that I would one day be a high school principal, I'd be like, you have got to be kidding. <laughs> There's no way that's going to happen. There's just no way. And that's ultimately, that's the role I'm in now. So I did six years as academic dean. This is, I've just closed out my second year as principal of the upper school. And I think with every role, I've gotten closer and closer to the student experience. And that's really where I need to be. That's who I am. That is really what I want to be doing with my life. And I think the schools afforded me a lot of opportunities to do really cool things and be innovative. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the kids and how, how they're learning, how they're growing and my ability to support that. Yeah, well, and support that. And as you say, see kind of the fruits of the policymaking that you've been doing, but also in the circular idea, like you know the research research so much that, and I'm sure you stay up on it, that you're able to almost use them as, you know, participants in this grand study of, okay, I see one group come through and we're gonna try this and make, you know, with the best effort, and you reap the benefits of kind of bringing the data science to the enterprise, right? Totally. I mean, I think if there's an area where I've really been extraordinarily focused, it's helping ind independent schools, not just mine, but other schools think about the metrics, think about the way in which they measure what they value. And I think whenever you start to talk about metrics, people immediately go to you know standardized test scores and, and it, it doesn't need to be that way. What's in your mission? What do you value? You can measure that. Um, there are a variety of ways to measure. And I think my program at UCI really helped me understand data and understand data science. And so I think that's a real, that's a skill set that I was given at UCI that I'm really happy to apply to independent schools because I think everyone is unique. You know, we can't do the kind of research that public schools do by, by just who we are. So right. if we can look at our missions and figure out what is it that we really value and can we measure toward that, then we can actually make improvements. If we know where we stand, if we know what's working, and that's really powerful to me. It's really, really animating. So you're in this place where you feel like, okay, finally, a culmination of the things I've learned and the things I care about and in this place that I love. Um, and you're watching your own babies fly out of that nest. What does that mom part of you feel like now? Because mm. you're bleeding edge for most of us. What, what is yeah. yet to come, right? Oh, my gosh. Watching Robbie graduate last year, I mean, it, you know, it's making me cry just as we speak. I had this unique window into his life, right? Working at his school and he's in college at, he's at Colby College in Maine. So he was going literally as far away in the continental <laughs> U.S. as he possibly could. I think in truth, there's just an incredible amount of gratitude and pride that school has helped shape this amazing human being. I loved watching him grow up, loved every single minute of it. And while I miss him, it's just really, really cool to look at your child becoming a man in the world with his or her own opinions and thoughts and desires. And it really feels like, I know it's not the completion of a job, but it feels like a step, a really significant step along the way in terms of launching this human into the world. And a human, I believe, is going to do really good things differently than I would do it, but um, that's the way it should be. It's been really, it's been an amazing journey. And as I said, early motherhood was really challenging for me. Mothering teenagers has been an absolute joy. I love teenagers. I really do. They are my people. Maybe I have some arrested development, but I love watching them grow. I mean, truly, when they come to me, they're on the edge of eighth grade. They're still young people. When they leave me, 
they're on the edge of adulthood. They're going mm -hmm. to college on their own and parents can't go. That's the rule. <laughs> right, right. They try. Many try. I see it. I live in a college town. They try. Okay. So I am going to bring it back to something that I think was so well stated in a different way. And I'm going to bring it back to you. So you said that what you have enjoyed doing for your school and others is to get them to recognize that you need to measure what you value. So in your life, how can you measure what you value? Mm. That's really, that's a really good question. I think what would help me answer that question is to share that when I was doing my dissertation research and looking at success metrics, what was commonly reported was status, income, those markers of success. And where my, my dissertation was very different than other sets of research is I was really looking at um, well-being. I was looking at how well, how happy is this human in the world? Because I think through my journeys, I've seen lots of very successful people who are truly miserable. Um, and that's not success to me. That actually, that is not what I would determine as success. So I think while I don't necessarily have metrics that I'm tracking in a spreadsheet for my own life, quite like I do at school, I would certainly say that the gross family happiness quotient is important. You know, I want to make sure that my kids have a strong sense of well-being. I do as well, and Andy as well. So certainly really focusing on those things that I know lead to well-being, focusing on my gratitude journal, exercise, sleeping, all the things that I didn't do so well when I was a younger person and much less happy. The quality of my relationships has become much more important to me over time. Once I realized that success, the way it had been measured for me, was not actually how I measured success. It gave me license to really focus on the things that matter to me, which is my relationships, my family, my friends. And I feel like I'm much more intentional about that than I ever was. You know, income's always a weird thing for me. We, we need it to live, but it's never been a metric for me. It just, it just never has. So it's not really in my spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the answer to the question that I would ask you last, as I do many of my guests. If you could go back to that 22-year-old Janine and give her that piece of advice that might have made steps along the way easier, maybe not different, but just easier to handle. When I think about some of the most challenging moments in my life, I think it would have been really helpful if somebody had said to me, accept help, accept support. It doesn't make you less capable. You know, there was that strong sense of insecurity that permeated so much of my younger life that accepting help when I needed it just seemed like it was a sign of weakness. Yeah. And in retrospect, I think it would have actually turbocharged my relationships and the things that I clearly now value at 46 that maybe at 26 weren't, didn't seem as important to me as climbing the corporate ladder or whatever I felt like I was needing to be doing. So I didn't say yes. I didn't accept help. And I was really lonely and really sad. And I'm sad about that. That, yeah. that didn't need to happen. Right? Right. Well, and you clearly are making up for that, not just seeking out help, but giving it so I'm sure abundantly to all the students that come through your school and your family and your friends. And if there's anything our dear Fred Rogers, class of 50, said, look to the helpers, right? And I am so glad that our young people have helpers like you um, to let them know that 
Yes, they can ask for help. And their well-being is so multifaceted, but really about feeling like they're good in their skin, right? Of who they are um, and all of the who they will be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and all the complexities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love, I love, love being a helper. I love serving. I didn't know that about myself until I was given the opportunity to do so in this fashion. Well, thank you so much, Janine, for being part of this. I'm so glad to have revisited your story and to hear more of the tale um, and so glad that we could reconnect in this way. Thank you. Thank you for wanting to hear from me this morning. Thank you for wanting to have this conversation. It's been fun for me as well to look back a little bit and just take stock of everything that's happened. It's, it's been a wild ride. Good things yet to come, I'm sure. Oh, thank you. That was Dr. Janine DiBenedetto Graham, Upper School Principal at St. Margaret's Episcopal School, an independent school in San Juan Capistrano, California. Find the school at smes.org. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, with another friend on the next episode of Roads Taken. <laughs>